How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, thank you for all of your promises that can be trusted and clung to. On this Lord's Day, we want to give you thanks that you would allow us to live in this nation, a nation that many want to come to. And on this, the last Lord's Day, while President Trump is still serving, we lift him up to you and to your care, his family. While many don't agree with him, we do thank you, our Father, for the things that you accomplished through him, for the religious freedoms that he protected for the evangelical church and all Americans. Thank you for his commitment to Israel, for you promised the nation that would bless Israel, you would bless. But the nation that would oppose Israel, you will oppose. Thank you that he fortified our military when it was in dire straits. We pray your protection over him, and we pray for the incoming president, that your will would be done, that your plans would be accomplished. Now, we are before you this morning in great need. We're in need of truth. We're in need of being able to represent the Lord Jesus well, and we know our ability is directly predicated to our knowledge and application of Scripture. So we ask you for your help. We pray that we'd be more than those who just hear the word, but those who are willing to obey it, to find true freedom. So, Father, come and help me and empower me and fill me and give me the words to say. I ask it by the Spirit's power and in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, as today we consider the subject, God in Government. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the epistle of James. And Lord willing, next week, we will return to that. But because of all the turmoil we've witnessed in our nation recently, with a new president being inaugurated this week, I felt like it was important to address this subject. One of the concerns I've had with the recent violence in our nation's capital, reprehensible violence, a very sad day in America, but one of the concerns I've had is to watch, especially one of the news networks, focus in on the Christian imagery, the signs, the hats, the t-shirts that had Bible verses and other things on them, who were at the large rally, very peaceful rally but somehow locking those people into the violence that followed. And I don't know how many true Christians actually were rebellious enough in heart to do that, but I do know that many times things that have been done in the name of Christianity have not been done by true Christians. And let me just say while we're here, I love America. 
I love America with its many flaws. America has always been a great nation by the grace of God, great enough to get us through some of our shameful past and to reject some of our sins that have been laid in the dust. But I know this nation is not perfect. There's no perfect nation any more than there's any perfect church. Wherever you have sinners, you have problems. But that said, we as Christians ought to be very grateful that God would allow us to be American citizens People are still banging on the doors to get in. You can say what you want about it, but this is the most sought-after nation in the world. But times are changing. Sin is growing. And as Christians, we need to understand our relationship to the government. Our ultimate identity is not patriotism to the U.S. It's an allegiance to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. That's our ultimate identity. He said, upon this rock, I will build this church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He made no such promise to any nation. And as a biblical Christian, we need a biblical worldview. Yes, I want us to understand how we properly express our patriotism, because while we are citizens of heaven, we are citizens of this earth. But understand, a day is coming when every single nation, every single government of this world will crumble under the lordship of Christ. And so let's keep first things first. And so this morning, I want us to understand God and government. What is our responsibility to the government? I hope you have found 1 Peter chapter 2 by now. I want to begin by reading this passage. We're going to look at a number of passages of Scripture, but this will be our launching pad. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning now in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors is sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves to God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king." Now, I'm hoping today that we will build a basic theology on what the Scripture says about government. You may have a theology on government that may be accurate. It might be totally inaccurate. Everyone has a theology. Theos means God, Gos from the Greek word. It means understanding of God. Even the atheist has a theology. His theology is there's no God. The agnostic says he doesn't know. Everyone has a theology in every realm, whether it's salvation, Christology, the spirit, pneumatology, or government. And we want to make sure we have a biblical theology of government. And so if you're using your note-taking outline, and for those of us joining us online, there's a place there for you to print it out. If you're not sure, ask, and they'll show you how to do it, the people who are monitoring the websites. And let me just say, whatever nation of the world you're in, last Sunday, five different countries were monitoring our services in 30-some states. People from all over the world will sometimes tune in. But wherever you are, if you're a Christian, these principles apply not just to the American church. These are for all Christians everywhere. And there are four key perspectives that I want to underscore in your thinking this morning. First, I want us to think about God's, that, that God calls us to submit to the government. God calls us to submit to the government. Let me zoom in on verses 13 and 14 again. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake 
to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. You say, well, surely it was easy to be in subjection back in those days where they had all those wonderful benevolent kings, but today times are different. Of course, if you know the Scripture and you know the biblical backdrop for the first century church, it was not an easy day in which to live. And when Peter writes this portion of Scripture, Caesar Nero is in charge. Let me read from a first century historian who well summarizes this man's life. He says of Nero, he was just three years old when his father died. It was little loss to the boy, for his father had been a killer, a bully, and a cheat. His mother took over the family trade and continued the boy's education. She murdered his stepfather with a dish of poisoned mushrooms. He was reared in squalor and proved a notable son to his parents. While still young, he committed his first murder, killing a teenaged boy who stood in his way and watched him die with calloused indifference. He married at 15, but soon had his wife killed. He married again and slew his second wife, too. In order to marry a third time, he murdered the husband of the woman he wanted. His mother annoyed him, so he arranged her murder. The age of 31, Nero was sentenced to death by flogging. He fled to a dingy basement and in the house of a slave sought to cut his own throat. He survived and eventually ascended to the throne as one of Rome's Caesars. This is the man who is in charge when the infant church is launched. Now, please understand, it's in this atmosphere that the Apostle Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The Apostle Paul expressed it this way in Romans 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, the word for subjection was a first century military term to describe someone who falls under the rank of a superior. The word refers to our relationship to the government. Just as someone would submit to a superior officer, God has called Christians to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Bottom line, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. We are to obey the laws of the land. We're not to evade our taxes. We must follow the building codes. We're to maintain the speed limit. I know the last part of the human body to get converted is the right foot, but God calls us, yes, even to obey the speed limits. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why should I, Paul? He tells me. For there is no authority except from God, and those which are, exist are established by God. You say, well, what about wicked governments and vile kings? Are they established by God as well? Well, he couldn't have said it more plainly. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. For instance, did you know the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar who ruled over Babylon, received his authority from God Almighty. You might want to put some verses out in the margin next to 1 Peter 2.13. Jot down Daniel 2.37 and 38. God said to Nebuchadnezzar by his prophet Daniel, You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. 
And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the fields, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. He was the king of kings in that day. That is, he was basically what we would call the president of the world. And in Daniel 2, the prophet Daniel had just prayed, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he, God, who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. God is the one who gives presidents and kings their authority. You say, wait a minute, I thought we voted for our president. No, God is the one who gives that authority, whatever means he allows, whatever process he uses to pull that off. Christ taught us that all government authority comes from the Lord God himself. And so if you're worried that somehow the governments of this world will get away with what they are doing, think twice, because there's accountability to God. And Jesus reminds us of that and that classic encounter between two kings. Pontius Pilate is the one, of course, in six trials that Christ experienced, one of the trials before Pilate. He had a few trials before Pilate, but one of the trials where he is accused of treason because his accuser said he made himself out to be a king. When the Lord Jesus is judged by Pilate, do you remember what Pilate said? Let me read it to you. It's from John 19, 9 and 10. Pilate asked him, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Now listen to the incredible response that Jesus gives. And the words that follow I know have been an encouragement, especially to the persecuted church for the last 2,000 some years. Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it has been given you from above. And by the way, that word for authority, exousia, is the exact same word that Paul uses in Romans 13 in verse 1. In other words, Pilate, the power you have to rule, even the power you have to deliver me over to crucifixion, is a delegated authority. It did not originate with you. Now, Pilate thought it derived, that his power derived from Caesar, but both Pilate's authority and Caesar's authority ultimately derived from God. Pilate had received his authority, Jesus says here, from above. That's why Paul can say no authority is given except from God, and those which exist are established by God. He is clear that Pilate's unjust, illegal abuse of authority makes him accountable to God because his authority came from God. And so God wants him to know his authority is from above, and so he adds these words, don't miss them. For this reason, the, he who delivered me up to you has a greater sin. Question, who delivered Jesus up to Pilate? It was not Judas, for Judas had delivered him up to the Jews. It was Caiaphas who was over the Sanhedrin. It was Caiaphas who first said that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. And it was Caiaphas who had the Lord Jesus led to Pilate and said that he deserved to die. It was Caiaphas who delivered him up. Now, Jesus said Caiaphas had the greater sin. That does not mean that Pilate had no accountability. To have greater sin meant that someone else had lesser sin. But the office that Caiaphas carried had a higher, greater authority than the office that Pilate had. 
It's one thing to hold an office of influence over the temporal decisions of this world. It's quite another thing to have an office that can sway for good or bad the eternal souls of men. To be over the souls of men is a high and holy calling. And so as we come to James chapter 3 in a month or two, we will learn that Indeed, those who seek the office of teacher or pastor should thoughtfully consider that call because those people will receive a stricter judgment. And that's the problem in our day. You had a high priest in his day who was corrupt. He was worldly-minded. He was spiritually insensitive to the things of God. He was a man-seeker, a man-pleaser. He only thought about Caiaphas. And that's the problem today. We have men filling the pulpits across America who, like Caiaphas, are not called of God. And so they give their cute little seeker-sensitive, feel-good, tickle-me-ear, tickle-my-ear sermons because God's never called them. When God calls a man, he is willing to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. God puts a fire in his bones, as Jeremiah the prophet said, to speak the truth. Listen, if Pilate's abuse of this office was great. If Pilate one day would be called to face God face to face for his misuse of authority, how much more those like Caiaphas, how much more those who are delegated spiritual authority? But this is an illustration that I want you to see that authority, governmental, spiritual, whatever its expression, it ultimately comes from God. King Nebuchadnezzar, the pharaohs of Egypt, Governor Pilate, as wicked as these men were, received their authority from God. So you mark it down big and plain and clear in your mind. These men have a God-given authority. But please understand, just because they have authority from God does not mean that God endorses everything that they do or say or would seek to implement. Think about the various institutions that God has uniquely raised up. God established government in the book of Genesis. God established the family, and God established the church. Think about the home for a moment. God has given fathers a God-ordained authority. He's called the head of the home. Now, I know that makes some people bristle in our day, but with no head, it's dead. With two heads, you have a monster. And where are children to learn submission and the smallest microcosm of life where he sees modeled between a husband and a wife, authority, loving authority, and submission. But suppose, for instance, a father, a husband, abuses his wife. She's not to sit under some husband beater. Suppose the children are being abused by the dad. Such authority needs to be held accountable. God has given pastors authority, but if a pastor fails morally or ethically, he should be removed from that authority. And so here with civil government, Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, will both point out that these people have authority that they can use for either good or for evil. And so when there's a failure of authority, whether it's Stalinist Russia or Hitler's Germany, God doesn't endorse that, but sometimes God uses even the wrath of men to praise himself, to accomplish his own purposes, and sometimes God gives a people the leaders that they deserve. Nero's government had many moral inconsistencies. 
And if you know Nero, when the persecution breaks out in full expression in just a few years after 1 Peter is written, he's cleaning up Rome, doing a total rebuild. He's trying to figure out, what am I going to do with these slums? They disgusted him, so he had them burned. Well, he had a revolt on his hands. And so in order to basically cover over his own wickedness, he blamed it on these Christians. You know, these folks who want to call fire out of heaven, they are the ones who are responsible and to baptize his wicked sin and to blame it on the Christians. He literally, as history records, had these human believers dipped in oil and they became human torches in his gardens. And it's under that kind of atmosphere that Peter says here in verse 13, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do what is right. By the way, the Apostle Paul gave the same expression of what government is to do in Romans 13. Listen to these two verses, Romans 13, 3 and 4. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, the government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is the minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, do you see that word sword? It's a very important word. It's the Greek word makarion. It doesn't refer to a slap on the wrist. Rather, it is a symbol of death. It's used that way literally in both sides of the Bible. Take, for instance, 2 Samuel 11. There the sword is used as a symbol of death. Do you remember that occasion when Uriah was murdered by the arrows uh, that day by the archers because David had plotted a wicked thing? in which to put Uriah on the front lines with some of his key men, and Uriah and some of his men lost their lives by the arrows, by the archer's arrows. But when Nathan comes and confronts David's murder, he says that you brought him down by the sword. Why? Because the word sword, and it's the word makarios in the Septuagint, the Greek translation was simply a symbol and emblem of the authority that God gave to take a life. And you can see many examples of that that are plain in the New Testament. For instance, in Romans 8.35, where the Apostle Paul is describing God's love that is eternally set upon us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Again, the same word makarion referring to an instrument of death. In Acts 12, in verse 2, if you remember, Herod Antipas had James, the brother of John, put to death. How? By a sword. Same Greek word. It was a well-established fact in the first century that the sword was a symbol for punishment, for capital punishment, for death. And so Paul simply asks, if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is the minister of God. He's reminding Christians that just because you are saved, you are not above the law, you are not above wrongdoing. God gives the government authority to punishment. Now, the government may be represented by the police officer who has to pull his trigger on someone to protect the citizens that he is responsible for, or it might be the person 
who has to pull the switch in the electric chair of a convicted murderer. My son Jameson up there tells me the electric chair in South Carolina is broken. Hmm. And of course, uh, sadly, these drug companies won't give the lethal drugs that are needed to execute some prisoners. And yet we have a man who is on death row because he entered into a church on a Wednesday night and murdered the pastor and eight other members. He is sentenced to be executed, but it hasn't happened. And so the death might take place through someone who pulls the switch or pushes the plunger, or someone who's defending our nation by firing off a cannon, or dropping a bomb from an aircraft, or discharging his M27 rifle. The government is given the sword as an instrument of death. Why? To avenge evil. The government is called to restrain evil. Jot down Genesis 9 in verse 6. Genesis 9, 6. God said there by Moses' pen, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. The taking of a human life in murder is such a heinous offense because God has made us in His image. God says that the person who does it deserves the forfeiture, forfeiture of his life. Listen to what Moses wrote in Exodus 21 and verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. And if you've read the context of that verse, he's not talking about accidental death or manslaughter, but cold-blooded, premeditated murder. And let me just add, the Bible teaches that when justice is administered, it is to be administered swiftly. The government loses its punch in exercising capital punishment if there's a large period of time between the crime and the punishment that the crime brings. And so Solomon wisely wrote in Exodus 11 by the Spirit of God, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. The average stay on death row in America is 14 years. Now, I believe in our judicial process, but if, unless somehow the process is sped up, capital punishment means very little. Some of them may say, well, capital punishment is cruel and it's unloving. No, it's not cruel. Coddling the criminal is cruel. Pacifying the murderer is cruel. Slapping the wrist is cruel. God has called government to protect the community. And when capital punishment is exercised biblically, where there is clear evidence, and the Scripture demands at least two or three witnesses, and without the punishment being delayed, it is effective. It was fairly and swiftly applied in England until 1965. And the first time I went to England in 1977, even then the police were not carrying guns. They just carried a bobby stick. Why? Because capital punishment was a great deterrent to murder. But since it has been lifted, the murder rate has gone up in the United Kingdom some 7,000%, and the police officers wear the same kind of weapons ours wear in this nation. Capital punishment is God's way to protect life. Listen, when you steal, when you take something from me, I can be paid back. But when you take my life, you cannot pay it back, and therefore God has ordered the fullest possible consequence. Still others who oppose 
capital punishment will be quick to quote verses out of their context. A popular verse that's used is Romans 12 and verse 19. You can turn there if you wish or just listen to it. He's quoting the book of Proverbs, but notice what he says. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, God says there should be, does not say there should be no revenge, because God says there is to be revenge. But underscoring your thinking, I will, I will, I will repay. Never get in your mind that all revenge is wrong, because it is not. We learn, however, in Romans chapter 12, that you have no right personally to take revenge that God has given to the government. If people take the law into their own hands, you have anarchy in a society. But it is not wrong when God, through the minister that he has ordained, the government takes revenge. The government is God's minister. He is God's instrument in which to exercise this punishment. So understand that this verse, in its context in Romans 12, is not an exhortation as to what the government is to do. In the context, he's dealing with the relationships that we are to have with one another in the church and in the society at large. Paul is dealing with the way in which we are to relate to one another as individuals. You say, well, now, wait a minute, Pastor. If God gives that right to take another life, to the government, do I have a right to protect myself? Now, please understand that contextually, neither Romans 12, 19 is dealing with the issue of self-defense or some other verses that are typically taken out of context. Remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Listen carefully to what Moses wrote in Exodus chapter 22 when in dealing with thieves breaking into someone's home. Exodus 22, you might want to jot down this portion. It's an important text. Exodus 22, verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. When a person stole, the thief was simply required to restore what he stole plus an additional penalty. And the reason, I think, for the fivefold and the fourfold penalties is because in this day, to steal a man's animal was to take away his livelihood that he needed to feed and to support his family. And no doubt, God viewed the penalty as a potential deterrent for someone to steal from you. But listen to what God says in the next two verses about theft as it relates to self-defense. Verse 2. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. In other words, if it's dark, especially in a day when there's no electricity, and so you don't know if the thief who's breaking into your home at night, if his intent is simply to steal or murder or both, and you in order to what you perceive is necessary to protect your life and the life of your wives and your children, God says there's no guilt on you. When a man knowingly, willingly, and deliberately breaks into your home at night and you don't know what his attention is, intention is because it's dark, God says you're not guilty if you take his life in order to protect your own. However, he quickly adds in the next verse, But if the sun has risen on him, 
There will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. What does that mean? It means that if you see the man breaking into your house at night and you can tell that your life is not threatened, then you have no right to take his life. And if you do, then you are guilty of murder. And so that man in Texas some years back who agreed to protect his next door's neighbor's house when he was on vacation, and two people came and he saw them climbing through the window next door. He came out with his gun and he told them to stop. He called the police and he said, I'm going to shoot these people. They said, please don't shoot them. We're on the way. He said, I'm going to shoot them. Before they could climb through the window, both men were shot dead. Now, under Texas law, he was exonerated, but I want to tell you, under God's law, he was guilty because his life was not being threatened, and in the process, he took their lives. When you come into the New Testament, you have to put a number of passages together because people will sometimes take these verses and say, well, what about this or what about this? Well, let's think about some of those verses like Luke 22 and verse 6. Jesus told his disciples that when they were out there sharing the gospel and traveling here and there, that they were to take swords along with them. Why? To defend themselves. But then if you, and and by the way, then you have examples like David with Saul. David had the opportunity to take Saul's life, but he did not. And Saul was after him. He wanted to murder him. Or think about Peter being scolded by the Lord in the night in which he was betrayed. And he told Peter to put away the sword. Not to mention, not only do they quote passages like Romans 12, that's quoting the book of Proverbs, the 20th chapter, most often they quote that text from the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5.39. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, since most people in the world, even to this day, are right-handed. Not everyone is blessed to be left-handed. When you, when you slap them with the right hand, you affected the right cheek. But understand, when you slap someone on the right cheek, it was not so much a reference to physical violence. It was a reference to a man's honor. And Christ's point is, is that you do not defend your honor, but you shrug it off, and if necessary, you give them the other cheek. So you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture because the situation and the timing and the context is everything. And what applies to one or two people can apply to two or three million people. Now, my Amish and Seventh-day Adventist friends tell me that if you take another person's life that is not saved, then you are breaking the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. Now, it is true in the sixth commandment in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 13, in the King James Version, in the Old English, in virtually all English translations until about 100 years ago, it said, you shall not kill. In the New King James and virtually, I don't, actually, I don't know of an English translation that has been done in the last 100 years that doesn't read, you shall not murder. And I've not read every single English translation because there's over 250 in our English tongue, but of the top 20, I've read them all, and they all say really what the Hebrew says, you shall not murder. 
Now, in the word, in the Hebrew language, there's a word for kill harag, and there's a word for murder rasak, and they are two totally different words. The word for kill can be describing taking a human life or an animal deliberately or by accident, legally or illegally, morally or immorally. But the word for murder can only refer to an illegal and immoral taking of an innocent life, and that is the word that is used in the Sixth Commandment. That is why when I say I killed a mosquito, I don't say I murdered a mosquito, or the worker was accidentally killed. Uh, We don't say he was murdered. English has changed. And so if the Ten Commandments prohibited killing, then we should all be vegetarians and pacifists. The King James used the word kill, and rightly so in the 17th century English, because in the Sixth Century, uh, in the Sixth Commandment in the English of 400 years ago, the word kill could be synonymous with the word murder, and context determined its meaning. But understand in Hebrew, just like in modern English, there's a clear distinction between the word murder and the word kill. And let me say parenthetically, you would not have to know Hebrew to figure this out. Because where the sixth commandment is found in the Torah, the law, we also refer to it as the Pentateuch or the book of Moses, these first five books. As you read the first five books, you discover that God sanctioned the death penalty for murder, that he allows killing in war, that he allows animal sacrifices. You know, you got these vegetarians who today say, I can't, you know, kill an animal. And well, listen, don't say that God says you shouldn't kill an animal. He instituted a sacrificial system to teach a very critical lesson that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so in the same Bible that contains the Ten Commandments, you find these other expressions of when life can be taken. And so sadly, many today cite the King James Version to justify either one of two positions, or sometimes three, a prohibition against capital punishment, an argument for pacifism, and some even for vegetarianism. Now, obviously, opponents of the death penalty are free to hold that view that they think a murderer should be allowed to live. But do not say that that's what the Word of God teaches because it does not. But understand, beyond the Torah, you can begin to read passages like in First and Second Samuel where King David is directed by God in particular campaigns and battles in which they were to take out the enemy. But then in the middle of all those campaigns, if you remember, on one occasion, David stayed home when he should have been at war. And God said, not only are you an adulterer, but because what you did to Uriah and his men, you are a murderer. Now, certainly, there have been wars in the history of man that have been wrong and immoral, and that's why it is critical that people who are in positions of leadership ideally be men with some moral theology. And if you develop a biblical theology of war, you will discover, first of all, that the Bible teaches the cause must be just to protect your loved ones and innocent people. Two, that your intentions must be noble, peace and freedom, not selfishness and greed. 
and that a war should be your last resort because God calls us first and foremost to be peacemakers and we do everything in our power to avoid war if possible. But again, I know there are pacifists, some I'm sure who are listening to me and I will receive their letters, which I typically do, or emails whenever I speak to this. They will say, Pastor Carl, how can you kill a man on a battlefield knowing if he's lost that you're sending him into a Christless eternity? Don't you love the lost? Or they might argue, what if he's a brother in Christ? Are you going to kill and take out another brother in the Lord? Well, listen, if you're fighting in a just war, that means he's fighting in an unjust war, and he shouldn't have been involved in that war to begin with. But understand that God often uses war, and the threat of death is the stage in which to prepare us for eternity. Think about the thief on the cross. It's not until he's facing death straight in the eyes that he's converted. And if God in his sovereign purposes want to bring, bring, allow a war to bring someone's conversion, I mean, look what happened in the first Gulf War. Think about all the men who were baptized because our nation hadn't seen active war in a long time. And so many men came to Christ during that time. So God gives authority to the government to bear the sword. That's the first principle I want to underscore in your thinking this morning. As we think about government, God calls us to submit to the government. Secondly, it's important, and we need to hear it in these last days of growing lawlessness, where people are foolishly and ignorantly being caught up in support of some of the recent violence that we also understand that God calls us to pray for the government. God calls us to pray for the government. Uh, leave First Peter, hold your finger there, and go to First Timothy. It's to the left of where you're at. Go to First Timothy chapter 2. By the way, all the T books in the Bible are found all in the New Testament, and they're all found together. And so they're easy to remember, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. And the word Thessalonians is longer than the word... Timothy, which is longer than the word Titus. So that's the order, okay? Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, because here we find one of the most important passages in all the New Testament of instructing the church, the body of Christ, true believers, to pray for the government. He opens, describing here in verse 1, different kinds of prayer. Notice, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. So verse 1 indicates that every local church is called to a ministry with God on behalf of all men. The word all men is very important throughout this text. And so we are going to discover that our ministry is exercised in both prayer and preaching in this chapter. The church is to preach the Word of God, but the church is also to pray for all men. And he uses four different words to describe four different kinds of prayer. The first word is translated here, entreaties. And it's a Greek word that comes uh, from a Greek verb that comes here as a noun that just means to express a need. God cares about your need. I hope you know that. When we come to James, we're going to learn we do not have because we do not ask. God says, cast all your cares, your needs upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. The second word that he mentions here is prayers. And it's the Greek word that refers to the sacredness of prayer. 
It is the idea of coming to God, and we are to realize who it is that we are coming to. It is an expression that our God is great, and that prayer, among other things, is an act of worship that we are coming to one who is able, who is magnificent, who is all-powerful, and one who is to be worshiped as you study the word and its various usages in the New Testament. And so the second word is an important component of prayer because we come not just simply to express our needs and our wants, but we come in worship and in reverence to God. And when you come in this way, remembering who God is and that he is able, then you are much more likely to come in faith. Notice the third word. First of all, I urge then that entreaties and prayers and petitions, petitions, or the King James beautifully renders it intercessions that might communicate better in our day. It's from a Greek word that conveyed the idea of someone whispering into the, eye of, into the ear of a superior the need of another individual. And so that's what we do when we intercede. We bring to the ear of God Almighty the needs of other people as we pray one for another. The first word, the fourth word that Paul mentions here, notice is thanksgivings. It's the Greek word eucharisteo in here in noun form, eucharistis. We get our word eucharist from it. And so the Lord's table, among other things, is a time of great thanksgiving. And we'll have it on Wednesday night. And I invite you to be here with me for that. But the giving of thanks is a vital part of what we are to do as a church. It's not just a gimme here and a gimme, gimme here, gear, gimme there, gimme everywhere, gimme, gimme. No, we are also to thank God. And sometimes it's a good thing as you pray with your children or your grandchildren to say, before we ask God for anything, all we want to do is thank him for something first. Just thank him. Just thank him. But notice again, the focus of prayer concerns all men. Anthropos, it's in the plural. We get our word anthropology from it. He's not saying all men excluding women but he's talking about all men and women alike. In fact, the new New American Standard, the 2020 edition that's on computer and will come out next month says all people, and maybe that communicates better in our culture. But then verse 2 says, especially though, notice, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So our prayers are to be all-inclusive, not just for our family, not just for our friends, not just for our fellow believers, but even for kings and all who are in authority, for all men, and I might add all living men, because there's no justification anywhere in Scripture, whereas some do on the 1st of November, we pray for the dead. The Scripture is clear. The moment you die, you're either in the presence of the Lord or you're in a place called Hades, waiting your final resting place in the lake of judgment. You cannot pray someone into heaven or out of hell. Their place is permanent. And to bring it down into the political realm, for kings and all who are in authority, if you are a Republican, then you should pray for the Democrat if he's in charge. Or if you are a Democrat, then you should pray for the Republican who's in charge. It does not matter if your senator or congressman or president is your choice or not. God says we are to pray for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. And what is the eventual result of praying for all men? Look at it, for kings and all who are in authority, so that, you might want to circle those words, so that. 
We may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. The results of praying for these kings and for all those who are in authority is so that we, meaning the body of Christ, the Christian church, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. Now, this is a remarkable admonition. Again, remember, 1 Timothy is written around the early 60s. And there was not, as best we know, a single king or ruler in the Roman Empire who considered himself a Christian. Christianity at this time is an unlawful religion, and it's prohibited in the Roman Empire. And of course, when Paul writes this instruction, once again, Nero, who I read to you about, is in charge. And while persecution has spasmodically broken out at this point, it's getting ready to take its fullest expression. So again, this is one of the most important passages in the New Testament that describe the relationship between the church and the state. So let's think it through for just a moment about the duty of the state and the duty of the church. There are three institutions, again, that God established. First, God established the family, then he established the state, and third, he established the church. Now, the state's fundamental responsibility is not to educate you, not to give you stimulus money, not to give you a job and all these other things it is doing that is going to ultimately bankrupt us. Its job is to protect us. It is to put down evil, and it is to praise good. It is to maintain peace. And so whose prayer does God answer? The prayers of his people. And if we do not pray for the state, then who on earth will? So we are to pray for kings and presidents and governors, all who are in authority, so that we can live a tranquil and quiet life. Again, their job is to keep peace. All the way back in the Old Testament, put out in the margin, a good Old Testament illustration would be Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 5 through 7. Put that out in the margin next to this verse, and let me read it to you. In the context, the prophet Jeremiah is addressing those Jewish people who had been carried away to Babylon as slaves. And he commands these exiles to pray for the welfare and the peace of pagan Babylon. He told them, don't pay any attention to the false prophets among you, prophets who said, you're not going to be here for 70 years, you're going home soon. He said, don't listen to them, listen to what he wrote, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce, because you're going to be here a while, 70 years, and that's not some number God pulled out of the air. There is a reason behind it if you've studied the Scripture. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. Decrease. And then Jeremiah the prophet instructed them in, these, in this way, with these words, and seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. Again, this is a secular power. Nevertheless, the godly Jews were to pray for the welfare of the nation of Babylon. And so it is the fundamental duty of the state to preserve law and order. And these people who argue that man is intrinsically good, 
They are denying the basic truth that God underscores in the scriptures that man is not intrinsically good, that man is inherently evil. I mean, who wants to live in a city where there is no police force? Who wants to live in a nation where we have no national defense? And it is a sad day in America when the people hate the police and want to defund the police when it is an institution that God has raised up for the protection and the preservation of life, whether it's police or an army, that is God's way to protect people in this world. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So this state is required by God to preserve law and order, and the church is required to pray. Now remember, the Bible gives promises and answer to prayer to his people. There are no promises, not a single one, as we studied recently in our basic discipleship course, not a single promise given to an unbeliever that God will answer their prayer except the first prayer they make calling on Christ and salvation. That does not mean, as we studied, that God can't answer the prayer of an unbeliever, and we looked at some examples where God did that very thing. But the only prayer that God promises to answer of the unbeliever is calling on on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so God promises to hear our prayer. We, the church, the body of Christ, those who've been born twice, who've been made new creatures, we are to pray for those who are in authority over us. Why? So that we can lead a tranquil, it's a word that refers to without a lot of outward disturbances, without a lot of violence in the culture, that we can live a tranquil and quiet life. That is a life where there's a certain peace within the culture. Now, as we move to the end of the age, God promises the church will become lukewarm and cold, and so they will be less inclined to pray. And so what will happen? The culture will get more and more and more lawless, and that will set the stage for a one-world dictator known as the Antichrist to step in. But through prayer... God teaches we can hold back many of the troubles from without and some of the unrest from within. And so why does God tell us this? So that I can serve me, myself, and I know so that we can live a tranquil and quiet life. Why does he want us to live a tranquil and quiet life? Why does he want us to have a culture like that? Because of what he says here in verses 3 and 4. Because he says this is good, that is praying, for those in authority and the result of the prayer. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And again, I hope you underscored or maybe circled in your Bible the repeated phrase, all men. The church, that is, born-again Christians, are to have a concern for all men. Why? Because God himself has a concern for all men. God the Father so loved the world that he gave his Son. God the Son so loved the world that he gave himself. And God the Spirit so loves the world that he might draw the world to himself. And so prayer is not some selfish thing so that I can enjoy my own personal peace and prosperity. James is going to speak to us when we come to the second chapter about praying with evil motives. No, the purpose of prayer is to get God's will done on the earth. And so among other things, his will is the salvation of souls. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth.
So first of all, God calls us to submit to the government. Secondly, God calls us to pray for the government. But third, God calls us to witness before the government. God calls us to witness before the government. So when addressing our submission to the government, the apostle Peter reminds us of this in 1 Peter 2 and verse 13. I'm going to read verse 13 and then verse 15. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether to a king as the one in authority. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, that is submitting yourself to every institution, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Peter is saying one way you can silence your critics is living in a right relationship to the government. Christians should submit to the government for the Lord's sake. That is, for the glory of the Lord and for the glory of his kingdom. Why? Because you are his ambassador. You are his representative. It will silence them. It's a verb that is used to muzzle or to gag like a yelping, snatching dog. You quiet your critics, and there's nothing worse than a Christian who has had an encounter with the law because he has broken the law, and in the process, he has violated his testimony for Christ. Now, sadly, he says that we are to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake, that is, for the glory of the Lord, into every human institution, and God does not qualify that command only if it's a good government, only if it's a just government. In fact, he says, render to all what is due them, tax, to whom taxes do. And the word here for tax is a word that can use, be used of any kind of tax. And then he says, custom, to whom custom is used. That was what today we'd call kind of an import-export tax. In other words, he's saying all kinds of taxes, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. So we're to pay our taxes. There was a movement in the 1990s that was advocating that Christians should not pay their taxes because we had a government that was in support of abortion. Listen, God says you pay your taxes. If the government has no money, it has no sword in which to defray the evil of the surrounding nations around them. Fear, or you could translate it as some English text, put it respect or courtesy to whom courtesy is due. I'm sure some of our Marines here, some of our Navy personnel understand that there are certain individuals who are not people of moral principle, but nonetheless they respect the office and they give them the salute that their rank deserves. And so there is to be an honor, there is to be respect, there is to be a courtesy that is shown to people that you may not necessarily like. Honor to whom honor. Peter said it this way, honor all men. Why? Because they're made in the image and likeness of Christ. Don't treat people like scumbags, they're made in the image and likeness of Christ. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. As a pastor, I think Christian parents sometimes fail in this. I mean, when you discuss the president of the United States or the mayor or the city councilman or the police officer who just wrote you a ticket, do you speak with words of derision? Do you speak uh, slurring remarks? Do your children and your friends know that you pray more for the government than you complain about the government? 
Now, it doesn't mean that if the president or the principal or the school superintendent or the senator or the representative makes a moral decision that is wrong that you should not address it. I called my state senator this week because she was blocking the bill that was going to put a pro-life bill out on the floor of South Carolina. And I called the man who sat in that position before her, Pastor Pinckney, who for two years stopped a pro-life bill. I pleaded with him one day for 30 minutes. How could he do this as a pastor? You're my senator. You are endorsing the murder of innocent little babies. Listen, we are to speak up. We are to have our voice heard. And when we speak up for what is right and speak against what is wrong, then we are assaulting up the culture around us. I hope you realize that the Equality Act is a major plank of the Democratic platform, and they hope to have it either passed or implemented in its first 100 days of office. It passed on May the 17th, 2019 in the House, but of course, they did not have enough senators to pass it. Well, that's all changed. And it might remove tax exemptions from Christian schools, Christian colleges, universities, seminaries, adoption agencies, food pantries, and the like that is in violation of the act. And it's very clear if you read it, the wording, that if you fail to implement the LGBTQ plus plus abortion agenda, that you're going to be considered racially discriminating people. Now, I believe that we're living in the latter days because while the second come, while the rapture is not a prophecy-driven event, the second coming is. Christ could have come 10 days after Pentecost if he wanted and then fulfilled the rest of the prophecy that would brought about the second coming. But he is fulfilling events for the second coming in our day. Israel is back in the land. God said he would do that at the end of time before the Messiah returns and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. He would bring Israel back into the land. And there are over 100 nations of Jews today in Israel, approximately 8 million Jews of the 12 and a half million that are on planet Earth. And God is clear they won't all come back. And then he said, added to that, there would be a moral climate like the days of Noah, violence, lawlessness, sexual immorality, in days of sexual perversion like the days of Lot. And so we need to speak up. It is our responsibility to be salt and light. And those Christian leaders who said we just need to sit on our hands and not vote were wrong, and we're going to pay a price for that disobedience. I mean, was it wrong for Moses to confront Pharaoh? Was it wrong for Nathan to confront King David? Was it wrong for Elijah to confront King Ahab? Was it wrong for Eleazar to confront King Jehoshaphat? Was it wrong for Daniel to confront King Nebuchadnezzar? Was it wrong for John the Baptist to confront King Herod? No, it was not. They were living out what God calls us to do. And so while we are to submit even to evil governments, we are to protest when they ask us to do something that is contrary to a higher government that is the government of God. There are many examples. Let me just give you a few. You might want to jot them down. Exodus 1, 17. 
Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill the newborn baby boys, but they refused to. Moses wrote, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. Or in Daniel chapter 3, just write down Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar issued an edict concerning that all the subjects fall down and worship his golden image. And Hananiah Mishael and Azariah refused. Most of us know them by their pagan names. We should learn their Jewish names. They refused to bow down and worship. Why? Because God had dictated you are not to break the commandment recorded in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And that's why Daniel refused in Daniel 6 to obey the king's edict. Or in Acts 4, verse 18, the Sanhedrin banned all preaching in the name of Jesus. And the apostles, Peter and John, responded in Acts 4.18, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Or again in Acts 5, the religious leaders once again confront Peter and the other apostles because they had disobeyed their authority and they kept preaching and filling the streets with the message of Jesus. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. Behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. They did not cause a rebellion, nor did they question or deny the authority of the council. In fact, they spoke with them with the greatest amount of respect. They referred to them as rulers and elders of the people. And it's very important that we respect the office, even though we cannot respect the man or the woman in the office. And as much as possible, we should try to cooperate with government in order to obey the law. Every time we build a new building, we follow the building codes. Why? Because that's not something that is too difficult to do. We need to do it because it's for the protection of the people. But the government cannot tell me what I can preach. God dictates that. They can tell me how to maintain a safe building, but they cannot tell me what to preach. And I know my son Jordan and I were in a discussion just a couple of days ago, my son Jordan, my wife and myself, and we were FaceTiming, and he said this, you know, mask issue is obviously going to get bigger. And I said, yeah, it's going to get bigger under Biden, no question. He's got a plan. He said, and I think he wisely said, he said, Christians need to choose where, what hills they're going to die on. He said, you know, when Jesus said, if they ask you to carry a pack, carry it two miles, go the second mile, he said, Dad, if they ask me to wear one mask, if need be, I'll wear two. Now, wherever you come down on masks, and I know people are all over the map, that should be your spirit, a spirit of submission and respect. This is not some moral issue. we got some issues we're going to have to deal with coming down the pike like we've never seen in American history. And so the purpose for the apostles rebelling was their submission to God. And if you oppose the law of man in order to obey the law of God, then you do what's right. But if you obey the law of man and in the process you break the law of God, then you do what is wrong. And the Bible plainly teaches us that if the state commands you to do what God specifically forbids, 
then you respectfully disobey. Remember Daniel, he's thrown into the lion's den. Some of the nobles had tricked the king into signing into Persian law a document so that anyone who did not pray as dictated would be executed. And so they caught Daniel praying three times a day. And so if you remember, the king did everything he could to try to figure out how he might deliver Daniel because he liked him and he respected him. But he had the law of the Medes and the Persians. Then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will deliver you. Then the king went off to the palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. He fasted not for religious reasons, but simply he couldn't eat. Neither was there any entertainment in the palace that night. He couldn't sleep. Then, verse 19, the king arose with the dawn at the break of the day and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. And you can hear the anguish of his voice as they looked through that opening down into a dark hole, not really knowing what had happened. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king. Live forever. I love his greeting. Even in the lion's den, even having been placed there by a king who could have taken his life with respect, oh, king, live forever. That's the kind of respect that we need to speak with our government officials. You can respectfully disobey but it's to be a respectful disobedience. Finally, just very quickly, just for a moment, God calls us not to hope in the government. God calls us not to hope in the government. Listen, my joy as a Christian is not predicated whether Donald J. Trump is the president or Joseph Biden. It is to be in the Lord. Our hope is not to be in the governments of this world. It is to be in God's government. And in these last days, more and more people not just in our nation, but across the world, vocally and enthusiastically is opposing the word of God. Remember what Psalm 2 says, King David wrote, why are the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles, in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? So the goyim, the Gentiles, they were the unbelievers of the day. Why are these unbelievers in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, now, if you remember the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, they actually quote verse 2. The early church understood that Herod or Pontius Pilate was like the Gentiles that King David is saying, speaking of, that had taken their stance against God. They say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Oh, the people of this world, they tell us that as Christians that you shouldn't hold to these moral absolutes, that we are narrow-minded, that if a boy wants to become a girl, or if a girl wants to call himself a boy, or if they, you know, want to practice intimacy with someone of the same sex, or they want the right to take a little baby in the womb, that we should not stop them. And like adolescent children, the nations of the world have set themselves contrary to God's truth. But listen to what God the Father says. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king, that's the Messiah, upon Zion. That's the temple mount. That's where he's going to rule and reign, the scripture teaches. Upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And so the Father now warns the people of the world. Therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. And rejoice with trembling to homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. This psalm speaks of God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who someday will prevail. He will rule. He will reign. It's a reminder that God is on his throne, that sin cannot win, that faith in the end will conquer, that God's Truth will prevail because there's coming a day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever, and what God says we know by faith will someday happen. He is the ruler of the kings of this world, and while the world's governments may oppose God's people, they will ultimately see the glory of God and the victory of Jesus. He is spurned. He is rejected, he is spat upon, he is lied about. They mock him, they make fun of him, they use his name in vain. But unless you identify with God the Son, you will spend an eternity wishing that you had. Look, when God looks down on this congregation and all those who are listening, wherever you may be in the world, he doesn't see Republican, Democrat, he doesn't see rich, poor. He doesn't see educated, uneducated. He sees two things, saved or lost. You're either in the kingdom of his son or you're in the kingdom of darkness. And if you die in the kingdom of darkness or Christ comes back finding you in that kingdom, you'll spend an eternity there. And that's not God's desire. We just read he desires all men to be saved, and you can be saved if you will call upon Jesus for salvation. Our Father, we thank you today for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And we are living in days of violence, of growing lawlessness. You alone knows what is in front of us this week, but we pray for our nation. We pray for our troops, our National Guard, our police, and our various state capitals this week, that they would be able to put down what is evil and put up what is good. Father, I don't know if this election was stolen or not. All I know is that you've given us the leader that we have. And the expiration date has come and gone on our ability to change that. So help us not to be foolish Christians filled with conspiracy theories and other things that will play themselves out before the week is over. But help us to be people who are in submission to the government, who earnestly praise for the government, who is respectful of the government, 
who witnesses to the government, but help us ultimately never to put our hope there. Because these kingdoms and these nations we know ultimately will perish and crumble. But you promise the one who does your will will live forever. So help us to be that kind of believer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.